Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu lcsi. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. You're listening to MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Nima Gobier. And I'm Ki Sung. I think I got a, a D or a D minus. I remember my, my dad uh, expressing disgust with my report card. You're constantly reminded that you have to have like A's or just A minuses or anything above a B to, you know, succeed. I like them because if you get good grades and that means that like you'll get a good report card and then the good report card you can probably like go to college. I was suddenly struggling with schoolwork and that took what little self-esteem I had cobbled together and threw it out the window. It's really um a very hard like thing to like just go over and make sure that everything's perfect when you know that you're not perfect itself, but it's very hard. It made me feel kind of sad. Grades. Whether you're a student now or were a student years ago, you probably have some strong feelings about grades. For people anxious about grades, those feelings are not unfounded. The scores you receive for points on homework, tests, and attendance have huge consequences, especially in high school. A bad grade can hurt your chance of getting into college. It can make you give up on a class or give up on school. Even if you're an achiever, grades are a source of anxiety. This past year, as the pandemic turned life upside down, some teachers were forced to look at grading, changing what and how they graded or switching to pass-fail models. Some districts called this do-no-harm grading, which tells you something about the stakes. Today, we're looking at grading as a whole the myths we've been carrying around, where our systems came from, and where we should go from here. Let's start with where grades come from. I talked with Joe Feldman, a former teacher and principal who wrote the recently published book, Grading for Equity. The grading practices that teachers use are really the same as what we've been using since the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution. It ended in the 1800s. Feldman says that back then, grades and schools were used to train new immigrants and recent transplants from the countryside for urban jobs in manufacturing. The industry was putting a whole lot of pressure on schools to prepare 
the students for the workforce, i.e. the factories. We can manage their behavior by giving them positive and negative reinforcements. And so when they go into factories, they will be well-suited to follow the chain of command and to start and stop working when bells ring and to be able to, you know, come on time and clock in and clock out and, you know, follow directions to the letter. This was all based on somewhat dubious social science experiments on how to get people to change their behavior. Despite that, grades were used mostly to train new immigrants for factory jobs where companies needed workers to know how to complete tasks within a specific amount of time or obey an authority figure. That was really incorporated into the way that we grade, which is very much like we are going to add or subtract points based on these non-academic factors because we are trying to assimilate and teach you to behave in certain kinds of ways. So essentially, this education model doesn't have the same goals that we have today, like cultivating critical thinkers who are creative and know how to collaborate. And we'll talk more about the problems with grading for behavior later. But is the current grading system, flawed goals and all, even accurate? A survey by Feldman of one school found nearly all teachers think they grade accurately. Those same teachers think only half their colleagues are accurate. For example, we have a French teacher who thinks he graded his French 1 class perfectly. But then when the French 2 teacher steps in, she thinks the previous teacher did a poor job evaluating these students. So who's actually right? It's hard to say because the system itself is a little flawed. Take, for example, the widely used 100-point system. So that's where 90% and above is an A. 80s is a B, the 70s is a C, and anything below a 70 just isn't passing. Using the 100-point system is actually a more recent practice in classrooms. It grew in popularity in the 1990s because of EdTech and the proliferation of grading apps. Joe points out at least three issues with the 100-point scale. One is that failure is overrepresented. There are more ways to fail than there are ways to pass because failure makes up nearly 60 out of those 100 points. The second thing Joe points out is that teachers can't really differentiate between the points they give when they're close to each other. Like with an essay, it's hard to pinpoint if it deserves an 85 or 88, which in a grade book is the difference between a B and a B plus. The third problem, and this is a big one, it really messes up an average grade. Let me demonstrate. Okay, Nima, if you have two quizzes and you get an A on one quiz, and then you miss school on the day of the other quiz and get an F, what's the average of the two grades? I'd give myself a C. Sure, but say your teacher is using a 100-point scale, and you got 100 points for one and a zero on the other. That would be 50 points. An F. It feels off. Also, think about the act of averaging grades earned over a semester. It's an average, and it doesn't exactly show progression, growth, or improvement. It reflects poorly on a student who may have gone from knowing nothing to learning everything. Averaging grades can make it hard to ever catch up, especially if you're struggling. So grades don't always reflect the growth of a student, and teachers know this. Sometimes it eats away at them. 
I think, you know, next to loving, I think learning is maybe one of the most vulnerable things uh, that we ask humans to do, um, that we experience as humans. That's Monty Syrie, an English language arts teacher in Spokane, Washington. He's been a teacher for 25 years. He's always tried to teach students to love learning, but he still had to give them grades for things like homework, participation, assignments, and attendance. Those things have more to do with creating good habits, like study habits, but don't always reflect skill or content knowledge. Then, one day, he had a student who really showed him how problematic his grading system was. It still bothers me to this day, and I have apologized to her over and over again. She was a rare gem. She had found her voice as a writer at 16, and it spoke beyond her years. Even as a high school English teacher with about 120 students per semester, he felt he'd come across writers this brilliant only a few times in the span of his whole career. But there was a problem. Even though she produced the best writing, uh, student writing that I had seen in the entirety of my career, um, she didn't always keep up on her journal. This was back when he assigned points for everything, meaning if she didn't complete a required assignment, she got a zero. And those missing points for not turning in assignments on time added up. At the end of the semester, I had to give her a C. Here's a young lady who, you know, did such a fantastic job with her writing, um, engaged with me in the feedback response process, was open to and even sought out feedback because she understood that that was a big part of the writing process. But at the end, I had to give her a C. And um, I, I remember distinctly how icky it felt to try to explain to her in teacher talk that I had to give her a C because that's what the grade book told me I had to do. She told Monty it made her feel resigned and apathetic. And he felt hypocritical, like he was setting her and all his students up for a trap. You know, I wanted authentic learning for my kids. And so I asked them to be vulnerable and to trust me. Right when they were opening up, expressing how they think and trying out new things. I had to grade them. And I felt like with that, I, I betrayed them. I hurt them um, because while their guard was down, I was labeling and sorting them. But why did Monty even grade this way? Here's the dark little secret about um, American public education, you know, and I think that, that we've kept it for, for so long uh, that I think we've even forgotten that it is a secret. Um, you know, no one teaches us how to grade. Teachers do a lot of work, and many have master's degrees, but grading isn't widely taught in teacher training programs. We just simply end up grading as we were graded. And I think, um, you know, Key, that's one of the first major stumbles that I took into uh, finally being done, though it didn't happen overnight, of course, um, but finally being done with, with playing the grade game. One reason people grade this way is because they believe that grading for behavior is helpful. Ah, we're getting into grading for behavior now. Yes. A lot of teachers think you need to assign points for homework, journal entries, participation. Otherwise, students won't learn. Well, now we have more data and research to prove otherwise. Let's look into five common myths about grading with Joe Feldman, and we'll finally talk about grading for behavior. Nima, will you read these five statements? Sure. Okay, and Joe will tell us if the statement is true or false. Ready? 
true or false? If I don't grade it, the student won't do it. False. That is a commonly held belief that it's based on extrinsic motivation, that the only way that a student will do it is if I, the value that I invest in it is through the points that I use to, to grade it. I was just talking to a teacher yesterday who said, I used to grade every single homework assignment because I thought that if I didn't grade it, the students wouldn't do it. And then I stopped including homework in the grade and I was shocked that the students kept doing it. And in fact, some students did more than before. And then when the students handed it in, I knew it was actually their work rather than copying because so many students copy each other's homework because otherwise they'll lose the points. Now, when I don't include points for homework in the grade, I know that every piece of student work I get is actually the students. And that's so much more beneficial to me. So if students see the value in the homework, they'll do it. And to be realistic, there are plenty of students who don't do the homework, even though it counts towards their grades. So it's definitely not an automatic motivator. Okay, next statement. True or false, an F or fear of getting an F will motivate a student to work harder. False. There's no research that Fs motivate students to do better, except for a tiny slice of students. The only research that supports that Fs motivate or that low grades motivate is for the students who have gotten A's historically. And when they start to get like a B or a C, they like scramble like mad because they don't want to get anything lower than an A because it implicates all aspects of the self-fixed mindset they have about themselves. Like, oh, if I don't get an A, I'm not actually good. I'm, you know. But for everyone else, in all other circumstances, there is no research support that Fs motivate. In fact, there's research that Fs demotivate students because they know that they don't know something. It's not news to them. They know that if they get a couple of Fs early, forget having high grades at the end of the term. And so what's the point? They might as well use their energy elsewhere. What we've got to do instead is help students understand that they can always keep learning. They can always redeem themselves with our help and support. And success is never out of reach for them. So just to recap, Joe Feldman says a failing grade does not motivate the majority of students to work harder. Ready for the next one? Yes. True or false, students can learn without being graded on their behavior. True. It is not to say that behavior doesn't matter. We as teachers, we want students to do is self-regulate. We want them to understand that, oh, I didn't take very good notes this time. And I can connect not taking very good notes to having lower performance on this quiz or this, this assessment. And then I can think like, oh, okay, well, fortunately there's a retake on this assessment. And what I will do is to take better notes and then I'll see if I do better. So now I will learn that I have to take good notes so I do well on the next test. And that's what we want to get kids to do. Okay, so connect the productive behavior with better outcomes on the test so they see the fruit of their labor in a meaningful way. Okay, Nima, what else is there? 
this statement has to do with taking points off for not turning things in on time, something we're all familiar with when we turn things in late. True or false, giving some students more time without any penalties is unfair to those who do turn it in on time. False. So I think there's a couple things underneath that. One is that if something is unfair, that suggests that there's a competition. And I think we've come a long way in disabusing ourselves of the idea that grades should be a competition. Because if I'm trying to teach a class, I really shouldn't care if I have a whole lot of kids successful and I shouldn't worry that, oh my gosh, too many kids are successful in my class. Um, you know, we don't want students to feel like they're competing against each other because we know that only adds stress and demotivates um, students and lowers performance. And, you know, learning is not a race. Okay, so this goes back to the idea that every person is different and they might need different things to learn, perhaps more time, and that should be okay. I have one more. True or false, giving points for extra credit helps those who fell behind during the year. Oh, well, that is a true but. It certainly can help them get the points that they missed out. Um, so that I guess it does mathematically help them in their grade, but the problem is it renders a grade inaccurate. So, you know, I didn't know the political causes of Reconstruction, but I brought in cake. So points are just fungible, I guess. And I, if I didn't learn something there, I can just get the points over here. It doesn't matter whether I actually learned the thing. I just need the points, 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 points. So it teaches students that all you gotta do is get points. You don't actually have to learn. You just have to get points. It perpetuates institutional biases because the students who can um, do the extra credit, it usually requires additional resources, whether that be time or money or transportation. Instead of extra credit, teachers often allow for revisions so students can improve their grades by doing better on the work they're supposed to do. So all these negative reinforcements aren't exactly effective. We know the threat of Fs don't always motivate students to try harder. Revising work for a better grade helps them learn the subject, and most importantly, students can learn without being graded on their behavior. These are the revelations that Monty Syrie brought with him when he pulled a 180 on grades. There were some missteps and some big lessons. We're gonna take a quick break, stay with us. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. 
Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Let's get back to veteran English teacher Monty Syri. He told us about the flaws he saw in traditional grading, that it was hurtful to students. And this revelation really hit home after 15 years. He had these feelings as he went through his grading journey, and he found other teachers had these feelings too. We started to have some suspicions about the impact that grading um, was having on on the learning, and um, not only the learning, but certainly the teaching, because those two go together. And um, I think we were discovering that maybe things didn't work as well as we thought they would. Um, From there, I I think our doubt, uh, which led to disappointment, eventually started leading, unfortunately, to resentment. And then really, unfortunately, I think it led many of us and certainly led me to a place of contempt. He thought about quitting, but instead he did something I've never heard a teacher do. I decided to give my kids um, A's for the entire year. To commemorate the occasion, he made these wooden letter A's over the summer so he could give one to each student at the start of the school year. As each kid walked in the room, I gave him or her or them an A. And after they sat down, I just basically said, hey, we are going to embark on a journey this year where we're going to focus on learning. And to make sure that that happens, I'm going to take grading off the table. And so here is your A for the year. You're going to get it no matter what. For me, that was a major leap um, and a bigger leap than I would recommend most teachers take. You know, I told my kiddos, um, some of you will do nothing this year. And for a few of them, that was the case because that's the dream come true. It was like, sweet, you know, Cy just gave me an A for the entire year. All right. I don't have to do anything. But for others, I told them, hey, we have 180 days here together. Your grade is already taken care of, all right? So all that's really left is learning. The year he gave all A's was a major adjustment. He didn't have any of the behavior compliance tools he had used for two decades. No more points for homework or participation. He also had to change how he taught in order to really spark his students' intrinsic motivation and desire to learn. His lessons had to genuinely excite them. It ended up being uh, an amazing year. Students were no longer worried about their scores and instead started to ask Monty how they could improve. Instead of scoring, they now expected support in their growth. But still, parts of the system weren't working. There were those students who did nothing. And for students who were making strides, giving all A's didn't let them recognize their own achievements. Not to mention, a part of him hoped that he could show other teachers a new way to grade that was better for students. And giving all A's was too extreme. Few teachers were likely to follow him. So he took a more nuanced approach to grades. Students now go through a process of telling him what grade they deserved and why. And Mr. Syrie would affirm or deny those grades based on his assessment of what the student demonstrated they learned. Students could revise their work to improve their grade if needed. Lauren Heinrichs took Mr. Syrie's class when she was a sophomore. Lauren was in the class after the wooden A's. His grading policy was kind of unlike any other teacher I've ever met. It was a balanced conversation of, you know, you're not just going to pass by doing nothing, but also if you feel that you have worked hard to the best of your ability, then 
you know what, I will talk to you and we can raise your grade a bit if it's down and you believe you tried your absolute best. Um, I never felt stressed out because I knew, you know what, I'm working to the best of my abilities. Sai has seen what I'm doing. He knows I'm putting in the effort and the work. And, um, you know, I think he will see that and reward it. Whereas in a lot of my other classes, I had spent so much time studying and being stressed out with grades. And in Sai's class, it was a more, it was a different approach because I did know I needed to do the work. When a teacher is in charge of giving out the grades, it's the teacher who gets to decide how the student performed. But when you ask a student to think about what grade they would give themselves and make a case for why they deserve that grade, that's a higher level of reflection. And while this might not work for everyone, for example, teachers who clearly have favorites and strong biases, it's a start. For Lauren, it was refreshing to have a teacher who had a different approach to teaching and grading. Remember, those two things are linked. When the pandemic came, it turned out having a grading system that's built on self-reflection, skills, and revisions, not behavior control, was perfectly aligned for distance learning. Big class. All right. Happy Friday, guys. Um, end of quarter. Um, it's go time. All right. And so with that, uh, thank you. At the beginning of the year, Cheney High School started online and was asynchronous. So sophomore Alex Heinrichs watched pre-recorded videos made by his teachers. So I had a few teachers and I didn't see their face the whole semester. There was no real-time interaction. So Mr. Syrie tried to make those videos as engaging as possible. He also recorded personalized videos for each student. Since Syrie did those YouTube videos for me, every morning he recorded himself doing them. Good morning, Alexander. Uh, I'm going to take a quick look at your purpose to form. Uh, she so I felt connected because I saw him, I saw what he was talking about, and that way I kind of had some sort of a connection with him online. Right. Uh, maybe someday we'll get to do this in person. All right. Thank you, Alexander. In comparison to other classes, this connection with his teacher was the extra motivation Alex needed to work hard. The process. It was all about the process of learning, not the end result itself. It was the putting the effort to then get your work done and then the process of the feedback between the teacher and the student to then work through the assignment to get the best end result rather than wrong, take a look at the notes and fix it. It was more of a process to work through it and really understand and better your learning. Monty Syrie and Joe Feldman aren't the only ones critical of grades. There are more schools and colleges seeking to move past grades, going towards more of a portfolio model, which includes capstone projects students are proud of that have passed standards, or interesting extracurriculars. It's not new, but it's gaining popularity. This is championed by a group called the Mastery Transcript Consortium that's made up of top K-12 private and public schools and universities. As individuals, teachers like Monty are able to change the way they grade because they have the freedom to do so. And here in California, a teacher's right to grade as they see fit is protected by law. So a principal can't tell a teacher what grade to give a student. And while change is daunting, it's doable. Monty suggests being very communicative with parents because like so many adults, we just know how we were graded. So any new change should be well communicated. 
I was very careful about making sure that they knew what my purpose and my focus was, and that was to make learning a priority. And I think it simplified it for parents and kids. You know, I think it, you know, when we're just talking about learning, people understand that even if they're not a teacher. And so I capitalized on that and, and not in an inauthentic way. Joe Feldman's advice is to the administrators out there. Encourage teachers to try out new grading systems themselves. I don't think you can change the entire district or the entire school all at once. Joe says find those cohorts of teachers who are eager to try this out, the early adopters, and make sure they're supported throughout the year. But also, staff should know this change is happening. This is the direction that we're all heading. So get ready and we're here to help you move in that direction whatever way you're, you're, you're able right now. Thanks to Monty Syrie, Joe Feldman, Lauren, Alex, and Kelly Heinrichs, and our friends who shared their experiences with grades, Sarah Fatui, Sam Fatui, Dan Brecky, and Michelle Murphy. You can read Joe Feldman's book, Grading for Equity, or read more about Monty Syrie's classroom transformation at letschangeeducation.com. MindShift is produced by me, Ki Sung. And me, Nima Gobier. Our editor is Jessica Pacek. Seth Samuel is our sound designer, Erica Aguilar is our head of podcast, and Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. If you love MindShift and enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. It's the best way for people to find out about the show, and it helps us keep going. And if you want to share your thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter at MindShiftKQED. Thank you for listening. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.